The Game of Zen explores the often overlooked ways in which professional, personal, and spiritual growth are interrelated. We dive deep into the life teachings of the Buddha and the mindfulness practices of Zen, revealing how they can help us dramatically expand our possibilities for wholehearted work, life, and play. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Game of Zen podcast. Today's episode is titled The Hot Mess and the Fray, and we are pleased to be joined by a special guest, uh, Jeff Shoan O'Keefe from Boulder, Colorado, longtime friend and Zen practitioner of Paul's. And we're going to be diving into examples from his career where Zen skills pr produce positive or negative outcomes and how he uses training to deal with all that. So, Paul, welcome and uh, tell us about Jeff and how you guys met. Yeah, you bet. Good to see you, Scott, and welcome, Jeff. Thanks for joining us on the pod, our first guest. Uh, Jeff and I have known each other for over 20 years. Um, we got first acquainted as he came and joined the Zen Center where I was practicing and started to practice. He had already had a long history of practicing with Zen as a resident of the Zen Center of Los Angeles and practicing with a number of teachers. So he kind of came in as a, as a mature Zen practitioner with more, more years of practice than I did. And we connected very much on that path. And then also he, um, he's uh, been uh, an executive and uh, high level professional in a number of industries for uh, the bulk of his career going back, what, 30, 40 years. And uh, I really connected with him on that too, because it was rare to find someone who was operating at that level in a, in a professional capacity and also someone who had such a, a deep Zen practice. So he's, he's the perfect person to come and talk about our theme here on the podcast, which is the game of Zen, which is, I, I was thinking about it, Scott. It's like, you know, the, the game of Zen is a little different from the regular games that we all play. We've got professional games and corporate games and economic games and every, they all have their rules, but the game of Zen like is a better game. It's a deeper game of mastery that we can apply within all of those other games. So we're kind of outlining the rules, if you will, um, around the game of Zen that really helps us with all those other games. Um, so Jeff, you, uh, share a little bit more for our listeners about your path, uh, in Zen and professionally. Well, uh, thank you. And I, I'm honored to be with you both today. And, uh, uh, so th thank you for the invitation and the opportunity and th the questions that you've posed, I have to be honest and tell you, uh, have been provocative. They were, th 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 they've really stimulated me to look kind of a little bit deeper and kind of behind behind the stories that I tell as part of my history. Um, as uh, as Paul mentioned, I uh, you know I, I was first exposed to Zen as a lot of us were probably in the '60s from reading uh, Alan Watts and and you know uh, uh, other influences like that. But it, my first in person experience with meditation was with a yoga group in 1972 in uh, Bellingham, Washington, and then. Three years later, I visited the Zen Center of Los Angeles in 75 for an introduction. And so that was really my first face-to-face, in-person uh, exposure to formal Zen practice. And um, I won't go through all of the all of the left turns and right turns and, and uh, cul-de-sacs and blind alleys and whatnot, but there have been quite a few. But, um, uh, but I, you know, I've, I've moved through various practice centers over the years and uh, 
and have have found a home here. And uh, uh, Paul and I share. Uh, I'm part part of Paul's uh, meditation group, Zen Zen Center, Eon Zen Center here in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, I'm qu I'm quite happy where I am. Um, the uh, professionally, uh, um, I <laughs> I ended up being in the in the business world, albeit it was an avocational path. It was the outdoor industry. I was a climber and backpacking wilderness wanderer, um, less of the athletics type and probably more of the Philip Whalen and Gary Snyder type. Um, and uh, that goes back for me to when I was a kid. I grew up in Washington State going to the Cascades and and then later the Sierra Nevada and, uh, and whatnot. But I ended up uh, finding work in the outdoor industry. Never had taken a business course, never had any interest in taking a business course. I've still never taken a business course and I've taught more than a few. So I don't quite know how that happens. Um, but I, I, th I think I learned, you know, the school of hard knocks, maybe they call it, or, or in, in the streets, whatever, just kind of trial and error, you know, making mistakes. And, and I learned, um, uh, I learned, and I, and I really have to recognize and appreciate through the kindness of mentors, people who promoted me above my skill set and said, go figure it out, kid. And, uh, and each time, you know, one way or another, somehow with their patience, I did. And that was an enormous, enormous gift. So I won't list the whole CV, but uh, I was, uh, I went through a number of outdoor companies from retail to uh, pure play uh, uh, dot com uh, startups, um, uh, manufacturing companies, wholesale companies. Uh, I was a consultant, uh, been president of, I think, five or six different companies at different times. Spent a whole lot of time in Asia during one of those stints when I was doing sourcing and so forth. So it, it was a lovely way to spend 40 years and it went by uh, somewhat quickly. Um, Good stuff. Good stuff, Jeff. So um, I'm curious about, first of all, I like how you say you're elevating people around you. I think above, below and beside you, I think that's super important in every successful organization that people are rooting for each other. And, and it goes back to teamwork, you know, um, and not everybody does it the right way. I'm curious as your career, you know, evolved into different spots and you also were learning the Zen practices and the eightfold path. How did you work those in and, and how did that improve situations that you were dealing with, maybe good or bad ones? Um, yeah, great question. Great question. And I, 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 I have to say that I, uh, if I did that, and, and I think I probably did, but uh, if I did that, it wasn't, it wasn't deliberate or conscious or programmatic. It would, you know, and it's probably just, you know, my nature. It was probably more instinctual or intuitive or, uh, you know, ad hoc, I guess you might say. Um, but, uh, you know, lot, lots and lots of examples. Um, you know, uh, th th there was a time where I, uh, uh, I was senior vice president of a, and I won't name companies here, so it's not necessary to do that, but of a, somewhat smaller company, about a $20 million company that had retail and wholesale and manufacturing and 
outdoor school and things like that. And I was a big fish in a little pond. And, uh, and humility, humility really had to come into play. Uh, and I will name this one. I got hired at Patagonia, which was a company that was easily at the time uh, 30, probably 30 times bigger. And I was, I was nobody. <laughs> I was right in the middle. And, uh, and I still thought, you know, I was pretty hot <laughs> and it just didn't last that long. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I, and I have to say, looking back, I don't think I, I don't think I thought of it at the time, but practice had to come into that because, you know, I just needed to do what I was there for and play my role and, um, and suck it up. <laughs> you know, Jeff, I think having known you in those days, um, just your choice of being in the outdoor industry, I think was informed by a sense of right livelihood for you, right? It was an industry that came in that, that possesses a cultural value set, you know, which you're very much aligned with. And I know that you've wrestled over the years with the ways that those haven't always been in alignment, you know, if a uh, private equity firm comes in and takes over one of those companies, they perhaps don't honor the original, you know, values of, of the, of the company, but wouldn't, would you say, I mean, maybe you can say something about that. Yeah. That kind of right. Some, some sense of right livelihood has always been present for you. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I did, I did have a story that I told myself that because this had to do when we weren't making napalm and we weren't selling cigarettes. Um, and, 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 and it was more than simply neutral in terms of impact on people and society. It was actually positive. It was healthy. Let's get outdoors. And so, you know, it was physically healthy, mentally healthy, and it was not lost on me because this is why I got into it. There was a spiritual component to this when, when you, you know, when you're alone in the wilderness by, you know, for a week, things happen, things, you know, things change, your, your perspective shifts. And I thought that was revolutionary. And um, so I was, you know, I was, I was very much in that kind of camp. Uh, there, not everybody necessarily was, there really was a, an athletic aspect of it. And as Americans and even Europeans, any, anything that's worth doing, that's simply joyful <laughs> or healthy, or spiritual, by golly, we're going to turn it into a competition. <laughs> so, you know, climbing competitions came along. They weren't, they weren't around when I got started. And, you know, all of that, I mean, we turned everything into a competition. Um, but, uh, but there were more than a few people who, who were kind of in that, in that uh, right, li maybe, I guess you call it right livelihood. You know, as we looked closer at it, um, you know, and this is the case, I think, with anything that we do, it's easy to find the things where we where we might be hypocritical. You know, I was in the business of encouraging people to buy stuff that honestly they, they may not necessarily have needed and that they and that they they had that thing already. But, hey, we have a new one for you and you need this one. And, you know, I, I, I could really bring up some judgments around that as relates to right livelihood you know, we were consuming aluminum that probably we had to overthrow a government in South America in order to get. Somebody did. Um, and everything was made of nylon. And, you know, I don't know. I have never seen a nylon tree. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so, there, so there was all that. But uh, Paul, you referred to something else. Things did change after a while. There was really a spirit. It was somewhat tribal. And and all, all of the early companies were owned by founders who were not business people for the most part. They were outdoor people. Um, um, and, uh, and they weren't there because it was business. They were there because they loved it. And, you know, and, uh, you know, you've, you've seen the cartoon of the door to the store is closed and the sign says gone fishing. Well, you know, that was perfectly acceptable. Gone climbing. See you Monday. Have a nice weekend. And that, that was really the, the nature of it. That shifted in the eighties. And, um, and we got the attention of, the, the advertisers, the marketers, Wall Street, um, investment capital, and, you know, a whole new group of people. I, I don't want to judge anybody. Everybody had a job to do. But a whole new group of people got involved in these companies and in many cases bought them, aggregated them, and a lot was lost. And, um, um, you know, there's there's there, there's a story there, but... Uh, um, it, you know, but it changed, you know, there's, you know, in, in business, we know about these market arcs and, uh, and, and we experienced that. And, uh, and of course in, in life, things don't stay the same very long. So, yeah. So, yeah. And, and I'm curious also about how do you let go from things that aren't going well, either with colleagues or with the businesses themselves, you know, we all have attachment to things especially when we're in a business situation and we're entrepreneurs. But, you know, I, I know over the course of your career, there's been ups and downs and right turns and left turns, as you said. How do you let go from things and move on to something else? <sighs> kind of like that. But it's a really good question, Scott, because it, um, you know, it, as, as, you, as you said, it happened over and over again, especially you know, from the, from the middle eighties, probably on. And I was involved in different companies that were acquired. Um, yeah, I was involved in three companies that went bankrupt. Um, and uh, especially with the acquisitions. Now I want to, I want to, I want to say this as gently as I can, but because I've been on the other side too, I've been part of management teams that were on the acquiring side. And there, and I have to be really humble because I did the things as the acquirer that I objected to when being acquired. Uh, and there's an arrogance there. You know, well, we purchased you because you guys weren't doing so well on your own. So obviously we have the right answers and you don't. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of that. And I fell prey to that too. I came in, you know, with the head, you know, with, with the head of steam more than a few times and I'm not proud of myself uh, of, you know, how quickly I moved and how, how, you know, the decisions I made, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of just moving fast because there, there's somebody with money behind me and that's what they expected. And um, I didn't like it when it was done to me yeah. at all. Um, so, the, so, the, you know, the, there's a level of patience when you're on the, you know, the acquired side of things. Uh, just a really quick anecdote. Um, and again, I won't name companies, but, you know, 
a company I was a VPN uh, and was in charge of, of, of global sourcing. We had about 70 factories in Asia. We were acquired by uh, a private, large private equity firm and they brought in all their guys from a, an industry that had nothing to do with with the outdoor industry whatsoever. And and my CEO, and I was on good terms with him, and he came to me and said, you know, uh, I've, I've brought in this guy who you're going to report to now instead of to me, who's really good at the whole sourcing thing, um, supply chain. He's a supply chain professional. And you're going to learn a lot from him. And uh, again, I really had to suck it up and uh, and be patient as I watch this fellow nearly bankrupt the company. Mm. Wow. And, uh, it, it, you know, ethically, it just brings up all kinds of stuff. Yeah. You know, I tried as best I could to try to, save, you know, save us and him. Uh, he ended up getting fired. I ended up getting the whole job back again. But, you know, I, I had to watch myself because there's that, there's that competitive, nasty guy in there who wants to go. Yeah. I'm just going to sit back and watch you fall on your face. And I really tried to avoid that, but I, but I had to look myself in the mirror and, and say, there you are, there you are. And uh, so that was, that's eye opening. I don't, you know, every day that was, there was practice opportunities in the, some of those settings. Yeah. So, so great story, Paul, how in this situation and others have you watched Jeff apply the eightfold path to these situations? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, he he just pointed to one right there, which is to um, um, not uh, to not know, to lean into the not knowing, right? To not make himself out to be the expert or the person who knows, and that's um, you know, there's a right mindfulness component to that. That's one of the eightfold steps, and then I'm sure there was right speech and right action, you know, associated with with that as well. Um, the the, the, you know, I, I mean, I, I think I was, I, I knew, I knew you, Jeff, when you were right going through that episode with, with the fellow who was brought in, you know, over the, over the supply chain and you were going to China, you know, every, every three months, I think you were going over there to manage these things and things yeah. were really out of, out of alignment. And I, I think at the beginning, you know, you, you were very angry and I think oh, well. you, you really wrestled with, with being uh, very conflictual with the fellow. So the process that you just described, <clears throat> and this is answering your question, Scott, was a process. <laughs> it took it took a it took a while, I would say, for you to, you know, recognize your own reactive uh kind of responses to, to the situation. And it probably wasn't um quite help as helpful at the beginning. It might have taken you a few months, if not a little bit longer, for you to more get get in alignment with allowing him to to do his thing and and actually trying to make the best of the situation. Uh yeah. So it is it it is definitely a process. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would completely agree yeah. with that. Yeah. 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 And I think to to kind of a to give a to give a snapshot maybe of how you know, I've seen Jeff work with it, and I think we all kind of have to work with it. Is um, so I don't. We've most of us have heard this term VUCA, right? To apply to a business context, it, it refers to volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Right. So there's a lot of like executive coaching out there about how you deal with VUCA. Right now, we also have inner VUCA. 
right? The inner volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and, and ambiguity. And that's that's what the Eightfold Path is. It's helping us get right with that inner volatility so that we can meet external volatility in the right way, which means the wholesome way, which means the aligned way, right? It doesn't change, you know, the fundamental chaotic nature of business environment, if you will, really of the world, ultimately, right? That's the fray. We're all in the fray all the time, okay? The, the inner volatility, that's the hot mess. We're all hot messes with all of our reactive systems and our attachments and our desires that aren't met and our cravings and all of that stuff. So when the inner VUCA meets the outer VUCA, now we're in a, now we're in a mess. You know, it, the, the, the hot mess amplifies the fray and the fray amplifies the hot mess and it really gets, you know, really um, difficult to, uh, to deepen in our own presence, you know, to live wholeheartedly. And it also doesn't produce wholesome outcomes in the external world, right? So the Eightfold Path is just a, a way of almost applying some discipline to the inner VUCA so we can meet the outer VUCA, you know, as it is. Hmm. Wonderful. That's really well said. And uh, I've never said these words before, um, but it just occurs to me that you know, on, on my list of things that, you know, uh, that I, that I take away from that, that time there, there, I can say two things that sound completely contradictory and, 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 and Paul, we, you know, we, we, one of these, we say all the time, it's not personal. It's not about me. And, 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 and for me to be effective in these roles, I had to be able to hold that and say, it's not about me. It's not personal. You know, if the, this guy is acting out in that particular way, that's really his thing. But the other one, and, and, and I don't want to, again, this sounds totally contradictory. At the same time, it's only personal and it's all about me. It's all about me. Not that they're doing this to me, but that how I react and how I comport myself is my responsibility. And my growth—that's my practice—is, and it's all about me. It's nothing else but me. So, and then that's wow. a process, isn't it, Jeff? To kind of um, be able to be wholehearted in both of those dimensions at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about ego, Jeff, um, because we know that in business there's a lot of egos involved, and it sounds like you've had to deal with quite a few in your career. How do you deal with your own ego in those situations where you said, you know, you, technically you could have stepped up and said, I'm going to get angry about this. I don't like what's going on. But you want to, you know, you step back and you were looking at the other person and understanding what they were going through and then then figuring out a way to deal with it properly. How did that process evolve? Boy, I, uh, that's that's quite a question. And and my own ego was, you know, is was the, always the biggest issue. It's. You know, um, uh, I wish I had a good answer to that question. Um, um, and I, I, you know, I would I would want to say too that getting angry isn't necessarily an expression of ego. It might be the it might be the thing that needs to be done. Um, and uh, I don't I don't think that you know uh, comporting myself. In 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 a, in a professional environment like that, 
or less than professional <laughs> as it may be, needed to mean that I just rolled with the punches all the time. Uh, and I certainly didn't. There were, you know, there were times when it, what was called for, and, and, and this felt like it came out of practice too. Like, you know, am I going to, you know, am I going to have the chutzpah to stand up and say what needs to be said here, even though it may not be popular? Um, it was one of my, and I don't want to get off track here, Scott, but it was one of my very, very first lessons. I was younger. Uh, so this was 1978. Um, you know, so I was, you know, 25 years old and I was a vice president of an outdoor company. And um, uh, a colleague and I discovered internal embezzlement. I'll just leave it at that. And one of the, and it was between partners, and one of the partners put the two of us on the board of directors thinking that we would be his swing votes when, 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 when it hit the fan. Mm -hmm. And we weren't. Mm -hmm. In fact, we were funneling evidence to the other parties. And boy, if that wasn't a wake-up call for a 25-year-old kid, you know, to go, you know, uh, sitting in a boardroom, you know, on the 25th floor of a bank in a town I won't name with lawyers and stuff and people putting the squeeze on us saying, you don't want to do that, kid. <laughs> and we did it anyway. Um, and it was the right thing to do. And it blew up the company and it broke up the, the partnership. And uh, somehow, miraculously... All these years later, we're all still friends. I don't know how that happened, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah. but uh, you know, and I don't know if that was ego or not. I, I don't think it was. I think that was just being having the courage to do what needed to be done. I, I would guess that you're the reason you're all friends is because of the way you approach that those situations. You know, with compassion, with mindfulness. I think if you had done it differently, it might not have worked out the same way. Hard to know. I'd have to go back and think about that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just the passage of time yeah. and, uh, and, and senility. <laughs> so, Paul, when you, as a teacher, uh, when you work with a new student, how do you figure out, like, what they're going through and how and what parts of the these lessons that you should apply? Well, I don't figure anything out, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> you did. I, I, just, <laughs> I, I just I just observe them. I just listen to them. And I, I feel and hear <clears throat> what's showing up for them. <clears throat> and you, what I'm, what I'm uh, listening into um, intuitively is what they're holding on to, right? And, uh, and to, to answer a little bit, you know, your previous question to Jeff, you know, one thing that, that you see and I've seen and you see when you study yourself, you know, deeply is that the ego works in certain ways. Um, it, cer it certainly works through holding very firmly onto your opinions, onto its opinions, right? It really loves to maintain that. So the one thing of working with the ego, one thing of working with the ego is, is to look at how firmly you're holding onto your own opinions and to really let go. You know, I like it, strong opinions loosely held. I like, I like that expression. For some reason, my wife doesn't like that expression, <laughs> but, but but I, I think it's it's really important, especially in a business context, you know, to have to definitely have the strength of your opinion, but to hold it loosely. And if you if you notice yourself holding on strongly to your opinion, and you might notice how quickly how quickly you are 
how quick you are to criticize or to reject or to come up with a counter argument to other people's opinions. Those are signs that the ego is really holding court, you know, most strongly. Um, the other thing the ego likes to do is complexify matters, right? It, th there's something in service to the ego to make things more complicated than they are. It perhaps burnishes its own sense of uh, importance. Well, this situation is so complex. Somebody's got to make sense of it. <laughs> okay. So th that's what I notice. And that's what I hear when students are presenting to me. And this could, this could be in a business context too. I mean, I actually do this as an executive coach too, is I can hear um, where they're showing up with strong beliefs and where they're showing up with uh, overcomplicating a situation is usually a sign that there's there's something that they're avoiding, which is a, you know, perhaps a difficult path for them to follow or a one that doesn't, you know, involve them <laughs> being the being the, 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 the superstar of or the star of. So I don't know if that answered your question, Scott. Yeah, no, that was great. And and I want to come back to us that we're all a hot mess, Jeff. <laughs> so how do you deal with your own hot messness and, and you know, stay above the fray and um, and then recognize that in others? Hmm. Another good question. Um, and I, I, you know, my, my first instinct is to say that I'm not sure I want to stay above the fray. I think I want to get right in it. <laughs> I want yeah. to get right in it. And um, but but try to bring peace, you know, um, and I don't want to use a capital P, but, you know, bring, bring calm into that, into that fray. Um, how do I, how do I deal with my hot mess? That's, that's Zen practice. Yeah. That's Zen practice. So, and, and, and there's no, there's, you know, we all know this, uh, there's no, answer there's no solution to it it's never over so you know how do i deal with with my hot mess moment by moment yeah and you know and i you know and i get it right sometimes and i get it horribly wrong sometimes and then i get up and do it again yeah that's great i mean it goes back to impermanence and every day is a new day and some days we're going to be feel better about ourselves than than we do and also with other people. So sometimes, you know, other people can be really annoying and sometimes we could have a lot of patience. And I think that's also a challenge in business is really when you start to deal with more. And as you got into bigger and bigger companies, there was more egos and more personalities that you had to deal with on a daily basis. And, and I, you know, and again, without tr trying to sound trite or, or cute about this, if I don't love my hot mess and if I don't love the fray, then I then I've separated myself from my life because there, there they are. They, you know that's it's what's going on. So it's it's a beautiful it's an intimate gift. This hot mess and this fray. Yeah. Um, one more thing, uh, Jeff, about the outdoors business and the connection. You mentioned it a bit earlier about like the peace and tranquility of the outdoors world that you were involved with and how that plays into the Zen practice. I find when I'm in the outdoors, it's just every time it's spiritual and enjoying. And did you see like a lot of connection there? I did. I, I did when I was younger, for sure. And, um, but I, I think, and again, this is just another opinion. So I'm, I'm going to chalk it up and uh, to that. But um, 
I've also over the years developed a bit of a resistance to the notion of us saying that one thing is more Zen than another thing. So, you know, if we talk about, you know, uh, the, you know, and, and of course we know what we're saying when we, when we say that, uh, you know, being alone in the wilderness, let's say, uh, which is, really is a profound experience, you know, is, is really a Zen thing. Well, yes, it is. But my practice is to find that when I'm at the RTD station in downtown Boulder or in the middle of an argument with my spouse or, you know, what, you know, when I've got, you know, <laughs> a stomach bug or something, you know, you know, if, if I'm making distinctions there, then I, then I'm missing something. So. Yeah. That's great. Very good. Awesome. Well, we could go on a lot longer, Jeff, but um, in the interest of time, I'd love to hear more about your Zen Peacemakers project. Um, please tell us about that and how people can get in touch with you. Let's start with the latter. Uh, uh, folks can go to our, our website, zenpeacemakers.org. Uh, uh, actually, I think we're zenpeacemakersinternational.org. And my email is geoff at zenpeacemakers.org. And Zen Peacemakers is, you know, roughly 30, 30 years old. We're coming up on 30 years and, uh, uh, and was founded by the first successor of Hakuyu Taizan Maizumi Roshi, who founded the Zen Center of Los Angeles. Uh, Bernie Glassman founded uh, Zen Peacemakers. Um, and um, his profound experience of oneness, of connection, interconnectedness with everything and everybody led him to really ask, ask the question, you know, after we sit here on this cushion for X amount of time, now what? And, uh, and, and his answer was, we need to, to stand up and go do something. We need to stand up and go do something to relieve suffering. Um, and uh, so he, you know, early on uh, articulated what we refer to as the three tenets. And they are, and, and Paul referred to one of these already, not knowing. So this really is the mind of Zazen of, you know, uh, you know, having no preconceptions, no judgments, no, uh, no ideas about what's happening, bearing witness, which is looking at the way the world is, whether it's beautiful or ugly, horrible or ecstatic, and not turning away. And awesome. then take, taking loving action is the third one. And, um, and uh, I want to try to give you a succinct answer here, so I won't go into, I mean, I could, you know, usually I'll, I'll present about this for an hour or two. Um, but uh, th this is has uh, expressed itself in bearing witness retreats in Rwanda and Bosnia. Uh, Auschwitz, we're coming up on our 27th year of being at Auschwitz-Birkenau. Uh, in Alabama, bearing witness to racism in America. In the Black Hills of South Dakota, bearing witness to the genocide of Native American people. And other places. Uh, and street retreats in various cities around the world. Uh, we're an organization, nonprofit organization, of roughly 6,000 members in 20 plus countries. 
with 54 affiliate groups around the world doing this kind of work, working with prisoners, working with refugees, homeless, food insecure people, end of life, uh, pure Dharma teaching sometimes, uh, the arts, um, you know, uh, women's liberation, racism, you know, all kinds of issues where we are being unkind to one another and harming one another. Um, so we come together to do to do that kind of work. I'll, the last thing I want to say about this, and, um, and maybe you may have questions, but the thing that's really unique that makes Zen peacemakers stand out in the field of engaged Buddhist organizations, and there are a number, Buddhist Peace Fellowship and the Thich Nhat Hanh Organization and a number of others, is that we're not trying to change the world. We're not focusing on solutions. We're doing work, but we are decidedly, and, and this is where it gets a little tricky, we are decidedly not positional. And that's a big one. I'll just give you a really quick example, and then I'll turn it back to you. A few years ago, um, a group came to us and wanted to sign on to a letter opposing the Myanmar military and what they were doing to the Rohingya in, in Myanmar, and we wouldn't do it. Mm. Um, we wanted to hold the Rohingya, but also the Myanmar military. Mm. And that that's, that's a hard thing, especially political activists like I've been most of my life, and I come from a very positional good guys, bad guys background. It's a very hard thing to hold that, mm. to, you know, to, to take action, even to work perhaps to oppose some, something that's going on, but without dividing, without separating. Um, so that's, that's, I'll leave you with that. That's, that's one really unique thing about Zen Peacemakers. Yeah, very interesting. And you mentioned like not picking sides. And I, I was thinking about Thich Nhat Hanh and why he was exiled from Vietnam for 40 years because he refused to take a side and, and neither side, you know, they both wanted him. And he just said, I'm, I'm not, I'm for peace. And um, they didn't like it. So they kicked him out. So uh, I, I think it's fascinating, Jeff, how, first of all, Zen, Pe Zen Peacemakers International.org is the address. Yes. So check it out. And, and one final question for you, Paul, is watching all this evolution of Jeff throughout his career in Zen and business, you know, what have you witnessed in him that, that's made you happy that he's uh, further along now? Uh, well, it's just the, 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 <laughs> the integration. Yeah, the, the, those whiskers. It's all about the whiskers. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is stroking his, his gray chin. Um, it's all about the integration, you know, the integrating these kind of understandings and learnings and capacity, the ability to listen deeply, the patience that Jeff started off with at the beginning. Um, these things just take time for us to learn. Um, so that as, you know, as with myself, uh, that's, that's the progress that is most, um, rewarding and encouraging, you know, to know that we actually can change in this way, just to deepen, deepen, deepen. And things that, you know, once once we didn't do at all, and then maybe after a few years of practice, we could do for, you know, half an hour. Um, 
and now become more and more just a, a fully internalized way of being with the world. So we can meet all all situations, big or small, charged or uncharged, young and old people, you know, with the same sense of of kind of curiosity and open heart and equanimity. So I've I've seen that with Jeff definitely. That's fantastic. Cool. Well, Jeff, um, every episode we have a book recommendation, and I would love for you to throw one out for us today. Well, uh, thanks, Scott, and uh, and uh, I like books. Uh, uh, but one of in the in the Zen the Zen realm, one of the books uh, that uh, and I think we've probably all read it that I've read recently. In fact, we had a we had a book group on it. We might even have done a class on it too. I don't recall. It's called "The World Could Be Otherwise" by the Zen teacher Norman Fisher. And without going into any detail about this, uh, it is not loosely, but very deliberately structured around what we refer to as the six paramitas or the perfections in Buddhism. And and it's a beautiful, Norman, first off, is a beautiful writer, but it's a, it's a wonderful piece of Dharma teaching that he takes us through. And uh, uh, I highly recommend it. So there's one for you. Fantastic. I actually have read that and Norman Fisher's excellent. Um, so thank you for that. Okay. I think now we're going to go into uh, meditation time for Paul to close us out. Okay. Great. Well, uh, I really appreciate your, uh, your joining us, Jeff, as a, as a guest here. So the, the meditation today, it's going to be a little bit non-traditional. So it's a game of Zen exclusive uh, premiere of, of this meditation. Um, I'm going to, um, have us really lean into the hot mess and the fray. And Jeff touched on um, the way that we actually deal. You could you could look at the two of the three tenets that he mentioned, the peacemaking tenets as the way to work with the hot mess and the fray. So the way I'm describing the hot mess is the internal, you know, volatility and reactivity. And the fray is the external, you know, chaos in quotes of the world, right? So you could say that um, not knowing is the way of dealing with the internal, and then the the bearing witness is going to be the way of dealing with the external. At least that's that's my frame for these meditations. So to start with, I'll invite everybody in to take a relaxed and comfortable posture. Um, come off of your seat back if you can. So you're holding yourself up. Relax your shoulders. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Turning your attention now to your internal landscape. I'm going to invite you to bring in matters that have a strong emotional charge for yourself in these days of your life. Are there financial concerns? Bring them in consciously. Really go for it. I need to make more money. How am I going to pay that bill? That dentist costs $5,000? Bring it in. Name it. Just notice what you're telling yourself. 
your personal health? Are there current concerns or worries? Name them. Your family's health. Name your deepest fears in these areas. Your relationship. Your relationship with your partner, your lack of relationship with a partner. Name your fears and opinions. The ones that are charging you most. You can bring, bring in your professional environment. My job's not going the right way. I'm not going to get the promotion. This project is going to fall apart. My boss sucks. Name him. So now just review and cast your mind back over these statements that you've made about your worries and concerns, your activated place. You can ask yourself, is it true? Maybe. Yeah, just being with it, just be being with the sources of your internal discord, such as it is, allowing it to be, but looking closely at what's underneath that discord. Okay, next, and turn your attention to the external environment. Whatever is going, going on in the world or in your life that feels chaotic to you. Turn your attention to it. Look at it directly. We often turn away from disturbing scenes.
wars abroad, <clears throat> poverty. noisiness conflicts political chicanery stupidity greed And can we just allow it to be? Just be present in your body right now, letting all of that great wide circus of a world do its thing. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Paul. That was great. And I do want to repeat something about the practice of meditation that uh, I encourage all of our listeners to, you know, that's a great way for us to summarize what happened and also be at one with our own thoughts. So it was great to hear that conversation and then do the meditation. So thank you, Paul. And Jeff, thanks again. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really, it was fun. All right. So uh, to get in touch with Paul, check out zenatwork.org. Sign up for a free coaching discovery lesson. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love for you to like and comment and subscribe. We'll see you again soon with a new episode. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this exploration into Zen Buddhism and its transformative influence on work and life. We hope you'll subscribe, share, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. May your journey be one of continuous growth and mindful living. From all of us here at Game of Zen, wishing you peace and prosperity on your path ahead.